We get to talk to our old friend, the economist Mark Paul, about his new book, which argues for an economic bill of rights. So what are economic rights? Things like Medicare for all, universal college or pre-K. It means providing people with the right to basic essentials like a home. I think a lot of people listening will be a little skeptical. Can we afford it? You know, the answer in the long run is yeah. From the home offices of Civic Ventures in downtown Seattle, this is Pitchfork Economics with Nick Hanauer, the best place to get the truth about who gets what and why. I'm Nick Hanauer, founder of Civic Ventures. I'm David Goldstein, senior fellow at Civic Ventures. A couple episodes back, we talked with the economist and philosopher Eric Agner about his book, uh, How Economics Can Save the World. And this week, Nick, we're talking to another author with a new book, which has some specific ideas uh, on how to do that through some some real policies, uh, a kind of, uh, well, uh, an economic bill of rights. Yeah, and this week we get to talk to our old friend, the economist Mark Paul, about his new book, The Ends of Freedom, uh, which argues for an economic bill of rights that actually will save the world. Or at least contribute to it. That's right. As, as a reminder to listeners, we had Mark on the podcast last year uh, for an episode on a very consequential topic, uh, macroeconomic models in the CBO which we invite you to go listen to or re-listen to. Uh, but today, we're going to explore Mark's new book on, you know, basically a new conception of how we should think about uh, what people deserve in an economy as abundant and wealthy as we have in the United States. My name is Mark Paul. I'm an assistant professor of economics and public policy at the Blaustein School at Rutgers University here in lovely New Jersey. And I am the author of The Ends of Freedom, Reclaiming America's Lost Promise of Economic Rights, which is coming out this spring with Chicago. So uh, for our listeners, kind of give us a, give us a, a summary of the arguments you're making in, in your book. So, you know, the book sets out to do a couple of things, but most importantly, it sets out to provide a pathway through which we can ensure that all Americans actually have meaningful and enduring freedom. Thomas Jefferson promised us the life, liberty and pursuit of happiness. Um, And I question what that actually means. And, you know, while we're used to talking about civil rights and political rights and uh, course, these days, reproductive rights, which are all absolutely essential to, to you know, have a, a meaningful and free life. Um, what we haven't been talking about much recently, but in fact, uh, America has a rich history in debating is this idea of economic rights. So what are economic rights? Things like Medicare for all, which is arguing for uh, the right to health care, right? Health care is a human right. Um, Things like universal college or pre-K to expand our education system, recognizing that uh, this decade, um, more than 70% of jobs require training beyond a high school degree. And so just like we expanded the right to an education to encompass high school, we now need to expand that right to education again to encompass college as times change. 
It means providing people with the right to basic essentials like a home. Um, you know, roughly 4 million Americans are homeless at some point in any given year, disproportionately youth. And these are problems that we can actually eradicate. So what I do in the book is, is you know, really two things. One is talk about these various economic rights. And as an economist, I ask the crucial question of can we afford them and look at how Neoclassical economists have long misunderstood many of these ideas. As you might remember in the 2016 presidential primary, you know, a lot of these ideas I'm talking about got called crazy or you know, argued that they would bankrupt the nation. And so I deal with those arguments. Uh, but the other thing I do that I think is really important is try to reclaim uh, the very word freedom. Uh, you know, this is a word that I think progressives have wrongly ceded to the conservative right. And I do this through tracking the fight for economic rights throughout American history from the more radical founders like Thomas Paine, who thought that egalitarian economy was inseparable from democratic success, uh, to you know, Lincoln, who engaged in massive land redistribution and helped create our modern public uh, higher ed institutions, to, you know, Martin Luther King, who actually his final essay published after his death was entitled, We Need an Economic Bill of Rights, yet we fail to teach that more radical side of King and the civil rights movement. You're really getting to the difference between negative and positive freedom. I mean, the right, the right-wing conception, the market fundamentalist conception, the neoliberal conception of freedom is freedom from constraint, like freedom to... Well, exploit freedom, others within the marketplace. From government. Yeah. <laughs> right. Get government out of the way. Yeah. And um, now you're free. Yeah. Uh, but there but but there is this other affirmative definition of freedom, I suppose, that mostly proceeds from Amatra Sen and others, that freedom means capabilities. It means the freedom to have a decent life. That if you're incredibly poor you may be free from constraint, but you're not in any reasonable way free, right? You, have, right? you can't do anything. And, you know, and, uh, you know, it won't surprise you to learn that we're big fans of that argument, that, <laughs> <laughs> you know, the negative definition is pretty constraining. And really all it is is a cover for power. It's a way of disguising the fact that some people have power and most people don't, and the people who have a lot of power want to have more. And the less constrained they are, obviously, the more power they get. That's exactly right. So, you know, negative freedom is the story that we think of today when we talk about right. freedom. It's um, the Bill of Rights, which is perhaps the, the most clear articulation of negative freedom. But let's remember, when, when the Bill of Rights was penned, I mean, the colonists were revolting against a monarchy. And yes, we need rights such as those outlined in the Bill of Rights, but those weren't the only rights they were fighting for. And, and we've really lost kind of the more holistic vision of freedom that has been part of the American conversation since there indeed was an American conversation. And yeah. as, as Karl Marx says, you know, workers are free to sell their labor power to an employer for whatever they'll pay or they're free to starve. Um, yeah. You know, I think just focusing on negative 
freedom, freedom from coercion, largely from the government, totally misses where we spend the vast majority of our waking hours, though, which is at work, where indeed our employer has a tremendous amount of course of ability to uh, you know, make us do things we don't necessarily want to do and to, to bend us, bend workers to their will. And so, you know, by bringing in positive rights, freedom to things, freedom to an education, freedom to housing, you know, you're actually providing people with the ability to, to lead meaningful, dignified lives and to be who and what they have reason to value. Yeah. So what would an economic bill of rights look like? Yeah, it's a great question. So, you know, the idea really first came to fruition in 1944 when Roosevelt proposed an economic bill of rights as the culmination of the New Deal. He was in office for more than a, a decade at that point, and um, you know, they had won so many victories, the creation of Social Security, the creation of unemployment insurance. You know, Roosevelt knew the job wasn't done. And, and so as part of his promise to the American people, as the Allies were turning the tides in World War II, it was to provide all with freedom from want. And so we can look at the legislative battles that we've been having in the country for more than a century now to, to just gain insight into what this would look like today. Or we can just look at what some of the you know, more progressive members of Congress have been introducing. So, you know, let's talk about a couple examples. The right to employment means passing a job guarantee bill. Um, so I know you've talked about this on the podcast yeah. before. It means a fundamental right to employment at a decent wage. That's one example. Uh, the right to housing, what this would look like is essentially building out what we call a homes guarantee. A homes guarantee has, has kind of a multiple components, but the two most important are social housing which is high quality public housing for Americans rather than just kind of low quality uh, public housing that we've had to date in, the, in this country that's really prioritized uh, low income Americans, thus kind of exacerbating both economic and racial segregation. It'd be high quality public housing available to people across the income distribution. And we couple that with rent control because you know at the end of the day, most people live in privately owned uh, housing units, and it would be time to, to better regulate those markets. We, we believe in regulating uh, the labor market through minimum wages. It's okay to say that we need to use similar types of regulations in the housing market to, to protect renters. Uh, be passing things like Medicare for all to, to sever the link between people's ability to pay and their very right to life, uh, saving and affirmative care. Um, so there's, there's a whole host of policies that I outline in the book that I think folks will, will find to help them wrap their mind around what enacting this would actually look like. And, and we get into the dollars and cents, too, thinking about, you know, both how to structure these programs and also how to pay for them. I'm sympathetic to most of these ideas myself, but it is reasonable to ask how much is enough, right? There is such a thing as, you know going too far. What, why is there such a thing as going too far? Why can't we have the best possible world that we want? I think, because I think, Nick, that, that if you look at what he outlines in the book as economic rights, right to employment, to housing, to education, to health care, to basic income, to a healthy environment, these are all things that I think you would agree with are necessary to be and to feel fully included in 
a, a 21st century yeah. economy and a 21st century democracy, yeah. and that without any of these things, you're not fully included. And in fact, if you look at our our focus on building a large, thriving, diverse, robust middle class, they're also necessary fulfilling, you know, I think we've talked about this, what I feel is the most fundamental aspect of being middle class is to not live in constant fear of falling out of the middle class. It's that sense of economic security. Right. And when you talk about going too far, the question is, well, you know, obviously we're not giving everybody a uh, a three-bedroom penthouse uh, apartment. There are limits to, you know, resources are not infinite, but certainly this is a, a world of abundance that we're living in now, and we can certainly afford to do a lot better than we currently do. And the other thing I know that you agree with me on, Nick, is that when we include people in these things more fully, it uh, the economy actually grows faster and allows us to, you know, this virtuous cycle. There are existence proofs of this. Finland. Yeah, the Nordic countries. Right? I mean, but if you just... Uh, Mark, would you do you agree with that proposition that if you go to a place like Finland, they have effectively implemented this plan? I don't think they've implemented it hook, line, and sinker, but I think that they're far closer to it than we are here in the United States. I mean, on this idea of going too far, mm -hmm. you know, I think we need to accept the fact that we can all have nice things. We need to move beyond this mm -hmm. scarcity mindset that neoliberalism has drilled into us from day yeah. one. And we need to realize that, you know, we have enough. I mean, you can find, uh, you know, policymakers talking about the fact that we've had we have enough for almost a century now. Yeah. Yet here we are multitudes richer and we still have 40 million Americans in poverty. That is a choice. And we can choose to build a different society. And this is how we do that. Yeah. Every time I think about, about how we would afford something, I just remind myself of the trillion dollars in stock buybacks that we just right. witnessed. <laughs> you, know, I could... you know, yeah, I'm not going to lie to folks. An economic bill of rights will not be cheap, but that's okay. I don't view that as a, a bug. I view it as a feature. Yeah. What we need to do is reorient the government budget away from subsidizing violence pollution and kind of bad, greedy behavior towards, uh, you know, helping a healthy, uh, well-being state flourish where, you know, people are treated like human beings. I mean, the, the freedom budget, which was a cornerstone of the civil rights movement um, written by A. Philip Randolph, Bayard Rustin and Martin Luther King, was just on this exact kind of fact that we have to reorient our government budget to set our national priorities and our national priorities need to provide for all Americans. So I'm curious, Mark, one of the arguments the founders had against including a Bill of Rights was the fear that if they enumerated rights, it would mean people would understand that they mean they don't have any other rights. They only have the rights that are enumerated in the Constitution. And yet these positive rights, while not enumerated, are clearly assumed, if not in the Constitution, certainly in the Declaration of Independence, in that line, life, liberty, and particularly the pursuit of happiness, which was a peculiar choice of words for the time, and a departure from the, the Lockean 
I think what the literally was right to it to state essentially to owning property to property, and so Jefferson replaces it with the pursuit of happiness. If you could go a little bit more into that, how what you're talking about here is part of our our history, isn't it? It is, you know, and and that's a history that I think we've lost to our own detriment. And so a lot of what I try to do in the book is uncover the uh, America's other freedom. Um, it's you know. Folks like Thomas Jefferson and Payne and Hamilton, uh, the kind of some of the more uh, radical founders who fought for a more robust understanding of freedom. I mean, even Jefferson truly believed that for everybody to be free, they all needed to be landholders. He believed that people needed to own the means of subsistence in order to live free lives. And, and he believed they need needed to be well-educated. Absolutely. He was a big um, supporter of public education. I mean, yes, he was a slaveholder, so he meant it for white white people, yeah. mostly white men, but you know, other than that, of that blind other, spot. Yeah, but but that is that is a bias that persisted for, for another two hundred years. Well, persists to this day, so even longer than that. Yeah. And on that point though, I mean, you know, we have other other examples in US history, for instance in Reconstruction. I mean, 40 acres and a mule was to provide economic security to previously enslaved uh, blacks in the United States. The whole idea here was how do we allow them to be free? You know, providing, quote unquote, freedom to somebody who is penniless and landless is is to mock their condition. And and Lincoln understood this and, and embarked on a massive land redistribution to try to right that historic wrong. Unfortunately, he was assassinated and, and, you know, really ground reconstruction to a halt. But that remains the vision. And we can track the fight for these rights, both from the founders to Lincoln and the radical Republicans through Roosevelt and the New Deal to the civil rights movement. I mean, economic rights were always a cornerstone of the civil rights movement, yet it's something that we've really taken out of the history books. You know, we don't talk about uh, nearly enough about the fact that the March on Washington was the March on Washington for jobs and justice. Mm-hmm. Um, the most common sign held at the march was jobs equal freedom. Uh, you know, people people understood that without economic security, the fight for freedom that helped them win the Civil Rights Act and Voting Rights Act was only partially accomplished. Yeah, and in fact, if uh, an, another thing people don't realize is that the minimum wage increase that they 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 had specifically named in that march would have been today even higher than a fifteen dollar minimum wage. Of course, what we're still I think you would agree that it looks like we're we're living in the through the collapse of the neoliberal era. It's coming to an end right now. Well, it's coming to an end. Or at least it's it's being phased out, but we need something to replace it. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what progressives and Democrats lack right now is a North Star. And I think economic rights could be that, you know, at, at least for the economic realm. It helps provide us with an understanding of what ties the Green New Deal to college for all, to tax the rich. What is it that links these different ideas? And neoliberalism had a had a fairly simple and straightforward story. Now, it was a lie, um, but it had a story that was easy to sell. Yeah. And and here, you know, a big part of the reason I decided to write this book is that if you stopped somebody on the street and asked somebody, what do Democrats stand for? I don't really think they could tell you. I think they could say, oh, Democrats aren't for poverty. Democrats aren't for neoliberalism. But what are they for? 
Um, okay, they're for a higher minimum wage, but but that's not a coherent vision of where we bring our society. It's not a coherent vision of how do we how do we build shared abundance uh, for everybody, given that we are in the richest nation to have ever existed. You know, scarcity is not our problem. Distribution no. is our problem. Yeah. And so that's the question we need to be grappling with today. I think uh, if you ask the Biden administration what Democrats stand for, uh, it's uh, building the economy from the bottom up and the middle out. Uh, it's a narrative they keep repeating that, of course, we're very happy to hear them keep repeating it. But it's one that a lot of other Democrats haven't and their allies haven't been fully comfortable coming on board with, even though the administration is relentless in using that language. I, th I think that the Democratic Party is searching for its own soul right now. I mean, one encouraging sign I see is that President Biden does not have Washington hanging in the Oval Office. He has FDR hanging in the Oval mm -hmm. Office. Yeah. What I'd like to see today is Democrats really reclaiming their progressive history. I mean, the right to a job was a cornerstone of the Democratic Party platform from 1944 to 1988, where it kind of silently died. Um, mm -hmm. But but we need to be pushing Democrats to get back towards an economy that that centers, as Henry Wallace fought for it, the, the common man today. We should be saying common person, of course. But I think that some Democrats are working in that direction. But, you know, the Biden administration, I think, has a tremendous amount of work still to do. I mean, yeah. they, they are are getting a lot of things right. But, you know, President Biden is not out there using the bully pulpit to argue for a more holistic vision of the economy that we need to the extent I think he should be. Um, but when we saw his campaign speech, his speech launching his presidential campaign just a few days ago, you know, what did he center? He centered freedom and the ability of Americans to have a say in their life and not just be at the whim of their employers, not just be in the whim of a fascist, you know, white nation state, um, but instead actually have a multiracial, multiethnic, vibrant democracy that embeds the economy and society rather than making society subservient to the economy. Yeah. So um, where do you think we should start? That's a great question. You know, I, I think that one of the, the most straightforward places to start is education and healthcare. So, you know, right now, um, one of the, the most pressing topics is student debt. And it's because people were told, get an education and you'll be able to live the American dream. And what that dream really is for most people today is mountains upon mountains of debt. And we can create a free public higher education system coupled, I should say, with free universal pre-K. And these programs would largely be substantially cheaper than the state of things today. I mean, just to give you one example, the rate of return on universal pre-K in the United States is over $8 per dollar invested. Uh, Nick, you were previously a businessman. Yeah. Uh, if you were told you get an eight dollar ROI per dollar invested, you'd take it in a heartbeat, wouldn't sure. you? Sure, sure, of course. Yeah. But yeah. for some reason, we're not. Um, and, and in higher education, it's the same thing. What we need to think about is yes, free higher education would be expensive. But you know what is really expensive? Our current education system. All the lost doctors and teachers 
and nurses that we're not getting because they can't afford to go to school or they dropped out due to financial reasons. You know, likewise on healthcare. What about the moral hazard? I mean, if we provide free, high-quality pre-K to these three- and four-year-olds, uh, how will they have the incentive to uh, go out and get a job? <laughs> well, I mean, as we unfortunately see, some states are, are readily repealing child labor laws. It's uh, just oh, there you go. unbelievable. Just when you think they can't go lower. <laughs> well, you know that with the CHIPS Act, those chips are really small. So we Small, need those... you need... Tiny little those, fingers to put tiny them tiny little preschool hands to yeah, assemble to... those chips <laughs> so we can compete with the Chinese. Yes, exactly. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Yeah. I was going to say, you know, one, one thing that I do want to point out here is like, you know, putting kids in school isn't only about benefiting the kids. It's also about freeing uh, caregivers, disproportionately women, from making the choice of do I want to stay home or do I want to go to work? Yeah. So we talked about Finland earlier. Finland has a much higher uh, labor force participation rate by women. In other words, far more women are actively working. And one of the big reasons is they actually have a well-being state that allows women to take some time off. Uh, from work to have a you know a child and be with their very young child, but then it allows them to go back to work because there are affordable state-provided options for childcare, and this too would boost our economy. I mean, there's so many caregivers that aren't actively working today because they can't afford to both work and send their kid to daycare. I have a nine-month-old. Yeah. I know this all too well. We toured daycares, and let me tell you, they told us they were three thousand dollars a month. But there was a rather sad-looking daycare that was for the cheap price of $1,800 a month. And let me tell you, we were not even touring the fancy daycares. Those were, were, were north of 4000 a month. I mean, 3000 a month outrageous. is more than it costs to go to college. Well, in fact, you just nailed it. Daycare is more expensive than college in the majority of states today. Well, well the clearly what built. the solution is, these kids should be taking out loans to pay to pay for their daycare. Oh, my God. I, I mean, 3, it's human capital. We're, we're investing in developing their own human capital, with they, uh, which they own. So why should the taxpayer pay for it? Here I am just channeling neoliberalism again. Let, let, me, let me agree with Jeb Bush here for a second. I think we should finance this through an income-based repayment plan. You know what we can call it? A progressive income tax. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah. truly, it's that simple. Yeah. That is what a progressive income tax is. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it, it, when you break it down, that's all it is. You know, we make these jokes. They're sad jokes. Uh, but we make them because it, it, it points out how perverse the current, the, 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 the neoliberal frame is, the cognitive frame in all this that has forced us into this scarcity mindset that says we can't afford not just the things we want, but the things we need in the wealthiest nation on the planet. And so it was uh, fascinating reading your book, just, you know, you, you just get right past that and go through the specifics, this, 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 and this. That's the Economic Bill of Rights. These are the things that we need. And I think, again, Nick, we focus a lot on the middle class. Every single one of these rights which you, uh, you outline in your book are things that are necessary for building a healthy middle class. And, yeah. and that is our goal, right, to have everybody... Uh, able to climb into or stay in uh, the American middle class, because that's the engine of growth and prosperity and dignity in this country. 
Yeah, absolutely. So a uh, couple of final questions, Mark, um, and, and you've articulated it already pretty well, but it's our benevolent dictator question. If it was you, what would you do? Well, I would pass the, the economic rights I lay out in the book. It's time to pass the PRO Act. It's time to implement Medicare for all. Uh, it's time to ensure that everybody has the right to an education regardless of ability to pay. Uh, we, would, we could implement these and more. They're eminently affordable, uh, and they would make us all richer for it. I mean, look, poverty is not only about hurting low-income people, but it's a drag on the rest of us for yeah. all of the you know, wonderful humans that we miss out on fully developing. Yeah, for sure. Poverty is expensive for everyone. But to do that, I would also tax the rich and tax them a lot. You know, one idea that hasn't come back to uh, that really hasn't entered the political discussion is this idea of a maximum income. Uh, that's something I talk about in the book. You know, economic rights are about setting floors in markets, but we need ceilings in markets, too, in order to mm -hmm. protect our democracy. Um, so, you know, we'd implement a, a maximum income. I don't know what the right number is there. And I think that's a, a question for a healthy democracy to struggle with. You know, maybe it's it's four hundred thousand dollars, which is the adjustment for inflation. If we took Roosevelt's maximum income that he proposed in his day, or maybe it's a million dollars. I don't know. But I'd like to see us you know, discussing this much more than we have been so far. And, and that's not a radical proposal. In a sense, the, uh, what, 91, 92% top marginal tax rate during the Eisenhower administration was the equivalent of a maximum income. Because everything what party above. party he belonged to? Yeah, uh, the Republican Party. That's right. That's why I bring him up. And, and, and you know, you think the way that works, if you're a, uh, a CEO uh, at a big company and you're making $10 million a year and you want $20 million a year. Well, if there's a 92% top marginal tax rate, uh, you're not getting most of that raise. So it makes it kind of pointless, uh, to, to be competing for that. And corporations and their boards will know that and they won't pay it. So that, that is the function of a high uh, top marginal tax rate. Most people, the vast majority of people would never pay it. And in fact, fewer people would pay it because there's no reason to earn that much anymore. It's true. Uh, so, Mark, one final question. Why do you do this work? I do this work to try to help build the society that I think we all deserve. You know, I, uh, I took a different path to becoming an economist. I used to work in kitchens. I love cooking. And uh, I always joke that one day I'll, I'll go back and just cook for a living. But I got too interested in politics and economics and the fact that I couldn't afford to eat in the restaurant that I cooked in, and nor could most of the other people working on the line with me. And uh, that's what set me on my path to economics, is, is how do we make sure that everybody can eat good food? <laughs> I'm fine with work. I like working. Um, but I wanted to, to understand how do we build an economy that, that provides, provides for all. Uh, and, and I'm continuing on that path, and I think that economics is... is you know, really where we need to be focusing most today. Yeah, that's a, that's a fantastic answer. I didn't know that you were a former chef. Yeah. A French chef by training. Wow. So cool. Well, Mark, thank you again for being on the podcast and uh, best of luck with the new book. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. So Goldie, should Americans have an economic bill of rights? Absolutely. And, you know, I, I think a lot of people listening to this, even 
uh, allies of us, some people on the left will, you know, be a little skeptical. Like, like you raised the issue, how far is too far? And really, it's that idea of can we afford it? And, uh, you know, the answer in the long run is, yeah. I mean, it might be challenging at the start when we talk about guaranteed employment, guaranteed housing, guaranteed health care, guaranteed education, a guaranteed income, some sort of basic income. All this stuff sounds expensive. But when you understand the economy, Nick, the way we understand the economy, this middle out perspective that the economy grows from the middle out, when you include more people in the economy, the faster it grows. And then you have uh, more resources to afford to put into uh, these uh, programs, into these rights that help build the middle class, that creates the growth, that helps build the middle class, etc. Yeah, it is that right. virtuous cycle. And, you know, Mark uh, talked about this scarcity mindset uh, that we've been forced into over the past 40, 50 years of neoliberalism that basically tells us, oh, this stuff would be great, but, you know, we can't afford it. It's not true. There's just not economics. There's there's no good economics to tell you that that is true, that we can't afford these things. And one of the reasons why we know that is because we see other market democratic nations providing these things and people are living very well. They're living longer than we're living. They don't yeah. have uh, homeless encampments on the streets. They don't have you know, uh, $2 trillion of student debt. You know, they don't have uh, people who are living without health care or housing or education. <laughs> so clearly it can be done if we, if we wanted to do it. I think that, Nick, there's another more philosophical question that, that is raised in this book, and that has to get uh, to that distinction between negative and positive freedom, which I know a lot of people feels really esoteric and pedantic, but it's not at all. And, you know, I want to get, you brought up Amartya Sen, uh, the philosopher and economist Amartya Sen. He makes this really inc incredible point that there's a, there's a difference between uh, fasting and starving. Correct. Um, even, even though materially, they're both the same thing, not eating food, Right. But the difference is that the person who is fasting is doing it by choice. They have the freedom to make the choice of whether to eat or not. And yeah. that is very different from the person who is starving, who doesn't have the choice, who's not eating because they don't have access to food. And that distinction, I think, can be extended to the rest of the economy. There is a difference between not getting a good education because you don't have access to one and she was saying, you know what? College isn't for me, right? Yeah. I, I want to work right. with my hands. There's a huge difference. And even though the same people, you know, he might end up in the same sort of job working with their hands, the person who wanted to go to college and couldn't because they couldn't afford it is going to be far less happy than the person who's actually pursuing their dream. This is what they want to do. Yeah. And, you know, we get back to the Declaration of Independence, that pursuit of happiness. That is our fundamental right. It's not in the Constitution, but it is deeply seated in the American tradition and, and in the founding of this nation, however hypocritical the authors of that founding document were. Yeah, and, you know, in fairness, even if it wasn't embedded in 
our founding documents. What's the point of having a society if it's not geared towards making life the best that it can possibly be for the majority of citizens, right? This is the only, the only legitimate source of legitimacy for a government (laughs) (laughs) is that it exists to improve the lives of the people it serves. And those people broadly, not just the people at the top. And I would bet you, you know, the, our audience, the people listening to this podcast, uh, the overwhelming majority of you consider yourselves middle class. You might make some distinction between upper middle class and lower middle. You know, I don't know how you see yourselves, but most people in this country see themselves as middle class, right? And when you yeah. think about your, your own life and your own lifestyle and your own dreams and your own ambitions, you cannot deny the importance of having a right to work to you know to a job having a right to housing to education to health care to a basic income enough to get by and to a healthy environment that these are things that you value within your own lives and you couldn't live the life you wanted you couldn't make the choices the substantive choices as a sen would say that that you want to make without these things so to say that these aren't rights uh, is to say that uh, other people don't deserve the things that you have. Yeah, well, there are clearly a lot of people who want to believe that, so. Well, hopefully not amongst our listeners. <laughs> yeah, well, in the world. Again, the book is The Ends of Freedom, Reclaiming America's Lost Promise of Economic Rights by Mark Paul. There's a link to it in our show notes. And as always, you can buy it wherever you want. You have the substantive freedom to buy that book from whoever you want. But uh, we'd recommend your local independent bookstore. Pitchfork Economics is produced by Civic Ventures. If you like the show, make sure to subscribe, rate, and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Civic Action and Nick Hanauer. Follow our writing on Medium at Civic Skunkworks and peek behind the podcast scenes on Instagram at Pitchfork Economics. As always, from our team at Civic Ventures, thanks for listening. See you next week.